If you had to rename the Bible, the Holy Bible, a name bequeathed to us by the second generation of the church, but if you wanted to make it contemporary, you want to rebrand the Bible, a catchy name, something that speaks of its content, and I'm not being heretical here, the Bible doesn't actually command us, there's no law, thus saith the Lord, these 66 books of the Bible will be called the Holy Scriptures. But you had to come up with a name, a catchy title. What would you rename the Bible? The good book, right? That's a classic, the old classic good book. What about thy holy comfort book? Or thy only comfort book? Very Heidelbergian. Uh, but maybe that title is a little bit too much about us. What about salvation belongs to the Lord book? A little bit cumbersome, salvation belongs to the Lord book. But if I had to tell you what the Bible is about in the fewest words possible, I would say the Bible is about the salvation of the Lord. That comes from the psalmist, right? The salvation of the Lord, or excuse me, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's actually the title of my sermon. Really nothing to do with renaming the book. I just had to come up with a catchy way to draw your attention. Your attention. If... If I had to title the introduction of this sermon, it would be, I'm sorry. But now that I got your attention, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's actually the main idea. That's the title of my sermon. It's the truth of our text. And it's the truth that the text actually tells us. Chapter 14, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. I love it when the Bible directly tells you what the text is about. Here the Bible directly tells you the meaning of, the story behind the story, the story of the narrative, the Lord saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now the question, how does the Lord save? That we have to find through exposition. We have to dig into the text itself, which we love to do here at CRC. The exposition of God's word verse by verse. Man, we love our liturgy. And the liturgy is important, it's beautiful, reverence and awe, and the aesthetic of worship, very important. But for the Reformed Church, the exegesis of the text, the exposition of the word takes front and center in worship. And that's what we're going to do right now, the exposition of God's word to find out the answer, how, the question is, how did the Lord save Israel that day? Verse 1, chapter 14, one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. He, he keeps a secret. Now we want to ask our Bibles questions like, why? Why is Jonathan keeping a secret? Why does the narrative tell us that he did not tell his father? Is the narrator, the narrator trying to Tell us something deficient. Is there something deficient in Jonathan that he would hide something from his father? Or perhaps there's something deficient in Saul. Now, knowing the two, I'm going to go with the deficiency probably with Saul, right? So the chapter begins with this important question. 
And what we find in this chapter is that Jonathan wanted to go over to the Philistines, and he wanted to go to the Philistine garrison to fight. And let's just recap the Philistines, right? The Philistines are now mustered surrounding Israel with over 36,000 men. It says in chapter 13, verse 5, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Israel is surrounded, and Jonathan wants to go fight. 36,000 and counting, he wants to go fight them by himself with just his armor bearer. What do you think of those odds? Jonathan wanted to take them all on. And that's not optimism. That's crazy. (laughs) It's faith. You see, Jonathan believed his God was bigger. And then there's Saul, verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the Promergannic Cave. Ooh, he's, he's hiding. Hiding in the cave. People with him, about 600 men. So there's Saul, afraid and in hiding. Saul only had 600 men. He was outmatched. Israel was outmatched. And so he was hiding, except Jonathan didn't believe it. Jonathan didn't believe they were outmatched. He had two. He had, a, he had another party. Hey, it's, I got another guy here. <laughs> I'm not alone. 36,000, I'm not alone. I have my armor bearer. You see, Jonathan believed chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 20. The word of the Lord. And Samuel said to the people, he said to the Israelites, do not be afraid. Yeah, but there's 36,000. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. You're sinners, but don't fear. Don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty, for the Lord will not forsake his people. And that's the promise he believed. The Lord will not forsake his people. Though there's 36,000 and counting, the Lord will not forsake his people. You see, Jonathan believed God's word. His hope was in God's grace and power. He knew that when we are weak, then we are strong. He knew that if God is for us, 36,000 cannot stand against us. He believed God. He had faith. It caused this boldness. He believed God, and it causes him to move. He comes out of hiding. He's not afraid, but he's going to now move. He's going to attack. He's going to change. He's going to seek truth, he's going to seek peace, and he's going to distance himself from the rest. Now, juxtaposed to this was Saul's unbelief. He disbelieved, and it caused him to be stuck. He was stuck. He's static. He's not moving. He's not going. He's motionless. His lack of faith caused motionless. He didn't seek change. He was okay with the way things were. In fear hiding, anxious, that's unbelief. And so the secret, the reason for the secret is because Jonathan believed. Saul did not believe, and he didn't want to tell his father because he knew his father would keep him from investigating his faith. So the secret of the text, how did God save Israel that day? The answer is faith. How did God save Israel that day? 
He gave Jonathan faith, and that faith made him bold. Jonathan believed and moved. Faith moved him to change. Faith took him from hiding from fear to courage and victory. It's the kind of faith you should have, right? Faith, Jesus says, moves mountains. You should have a faith that moves. You see, unbelief leaves us motionless. Unbelief static. Doesn't change. But faith moves. Seeks change. Seeks deliverance. Has courage. Victory. Those are the kind of words that go with faith. Motionless and fear, anxiety, those are the things that go with a lack of faith. Saul has a lack of faith that kept him hiding under the mountain. And not only is he hiding in fear, but he's also hiding in error. Verse 3, it says, with him, he has these 600 men, but also including Ahijah, the son of Ahatub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Now, why wearing an ephod? Ephod means he's a priest. He's, he's, he, the narrator is saying, oh, look, he's a priest. Now, why is the narrator highlighting that he's a priest? And why does the narrator explain his lineage? He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to explain that he's wearing the ephod and so forth. We'd expect him to be wearing the ephod if he's a priest of the Lord. But why such relevance? Why explain his lineage and the fact that he's wearing an ephod? Now, if you remember the text, if you remember the story of Ichabod, remember Ichabod? What does Ichabod mean? Right? The name Ichabod, it means no glory. Ichabod was born in the time when the priests were sacrilege, and Samuel stripped this line of priests from their calling. This line of priests, these priests should not be serving. These were the rejected priests of God. Samuel disavowed their ordination. This line should not be wearing the ephod. And that's what the narrator is trying to remind us. Oh, something's wrong here. This is the rejected ministry. This is not genuine. These are not genuine ministers. But Paul has resurrected, excuse me, not Paul, Saul has resurrected their ministry. He's resurrected this false line of priests. Why? Paul tells us why. Paul says in Timothy, he said, there is a time coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. There's a time coming. Well, that time has already come. <laughs> Saul's already in that time. Saul turned away from truth to error. What Saul did here usually happens when someone wants to abandon uh, orthodoxy and turn from the church. Usually what people will do today is they'll, they want to turn from orthodoxy, they want to abandon the church and truth, they'll, they'll go find some person in the past who believes what they believe now. They'll say, aha, look, here's a guy who believes my heresy. <laughs> here's a guy who believes what I believe. I'm legitimate. Here's a guy in the past. And you can resurrect all kinds of false teachers in church history to validate your error. You see, we believe as Protestants that the church errs. The church errs. And so the church is full of heretics. The church is full of heresy and discord. Paul also calls the church the pillar and buttress of truth. 
You see, there is a consensus of orthodoxy. There is a consensus of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, the church is found from the word and displayed for the world to see. It's contended for by the fathers in their writings, councils, creeds, and confessions. And the Reformed faith is a Catholic faith. John Calvin said in the Institutes of Christian Religion, I quote, if a contest were to be determined by patristic authority, that is, if Christian traditions were to have a contest, who has the most patristic authority on our side? Calvin says the tide of victory would easily turn to our side. You see, the ancient fathers have written many excellent and important things. The ancient fathers, even the medieval fathers. And our confessions, what we believe must meet their approval. And it does. The Reformed faith is a very Catholic faith. Now, because of sin and other reasons, the fathers do err, and those who want to stray from the truth avoid the good of the fathers and find and latch onto their errors instead, or they uh, pervert the fathers, misrepresent the fathers. Calvin said, I quote, all they care to do is gather the dung amid the gold. All they do is gather, do is to gather the dung amid the gold. But the true faith holds on to the gold, the good, the beautiful, that is the word of God. And we believe the word, it has been believed from the beginning, faith once and all for once and forever delivered. So if you believe in something the church has never taught, if you practice something the church has never done, my church, my money's on the church Catholic. Now I know I'm talking to a bunch of Americans. America, America, land of the free, home of the brave, religion of the people, by the people, religion of the people, by the people, liberty. And I listen to a podcast. I know you've listened to some podcasts. I know you've read a blog or two. But the church is still the pillar and buttress of the truth. I don't care what that podcast says. For 500 years, over 500 years, our three forms of unity have been tested and tried. And it is a faith built solely off the word of God, framed by the fathers and finished by the reformers. It's a solid pillar and buttress. You can trust it. Verse 4, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over, he was wearing this ephod, it says, and then the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. In verse 4, within the passes, so he's going within these passes which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes, the other, Sena. The one crag rose in the north and went from Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibba. If you know your geography, you know where these crags are. I couldn't find them, but they're there somewhere. Not sure where they were, but we do know the, the name, the meaning of Bozes. Uh, Bozes means thorny, and Senna means slippery. So it'd be like, you know, if you invited your friends, hey, you want to go on a hike today? Oh, yeah, where are we going? We're going to, we're going to go hike over uh, thorny and slippery. <laughs> Wouldn't be very inviting, would it be, to hike over thorny and slippery? Not very inviting, that's the point. This isn't very inviting pass. It's an impassable pass. It's an impassable mountain, and that's where the story begins. That's where Jonathan's plans takes place before these two impassable crags. They're not even mountains, they're crags. I'm not sure what a crag is, but it sounds worse than a mountain. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to this garrison to these uncircumcised. Now, the Hebrew word uncircumcised 
when a Jew talks like that, when he says these Gentiles or these uncircumcised, that has a religious connotation to it. These uncircumcised. What he's saying is, let's go over to these people who are outside of God's covenant. Let's go to these people who are outside of God's will. Let's go to these people who are without God, without hope, and are vessels fit for destruction. Our God is amazing. I know there's just you and me, but let's go destroy this enemy. Kind of reminds you of David, does it not, with Goliath? Who are you? This big old giant of a man. Who are you? Uncircumcised Philistine. This is faith. Jonathan believed God's word. God's word promised Israel victory against their enemy. God's word promises salvation for God's people and destruction for his enemy. This is faith. Jonathan believes God's with him. This is faith. Jonathan believes God's word and he believes the power of the word, that power that can do all his holy will and his holy will is for Israel's good. And so faith gave Jonathan hope because his faith united him to to God. It united him to a powerful God. It united him to grace. The Lord saved Israel that day by faith. The Lord saved Israel that day by grace. Faith and grace. Now notice the text. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Verse 6, come, let us go to these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I love the it may be. It may be that God works for us. Does God work for us? Yeah, I, I think he's right there. He's being very orthodox. God does work for us. But you must remember that God doesn't work, or God works for us. He works by us. He uses us. He works for us. He defeats our enemies for us. But God doesn't work because of us. Now, that's the important distinction. God doesn't work because of us. That is, God's not beholden to us. We are beholden to God. God doesn't work for us because we're so awesome. Like the shiny little minister in Houston likes to tell you, oh, you know. God doesn't work because of you. You're so beautiful. No, he works in spite of you. He works because of him. He doesn't work now because Jonathan has this great plan. We're going to see that Jonathan, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you in a minute that Jonathan's plan is terrible. (laughs) Two men going to fight 30, that's a terrible plan. God's not like, oh, I like this plan. I'm going to work. I can use this plan. No. Jonathan knew that God can do great with nothing. And guess what? It's a great place to be because we're nothing. You see, true faith understands our helplessness. Jonathan trusted God so much, he knows that Yahweh will do and can do with sinners like you and me. He can do all things. Now, this maybe is faith. Now, notice he says, maybe God will help us. He's not demanding. Faith doesn't say, oh, God, you will. Oh, God, you must. That is the faith of many. Oh, God, you must. Health and wealth. Best life now. Oh, you must. I've named it. I've claimed it. God, you must. You're beckoned to my call. 
You're beckoning my hand. My little errand boy, do what I want because I said it and I want it. Oh, and you bear not, God. You bear not send tragedy my way. If you send tragedy my way, oh, I'm going to throw a fit. <laughs> I'm not going to believe anymore. I'm going to doubt. I'm going to turn. I'm going to hide. I'm not going to move. I'm going to become stale. You see, faith, true faith never says, how dare God allow this trouble? You see, friends, brothers, sisters in the Lord, saving faith becomes even more alive in the trouble. Saving faith shines. Trouble is where faith shines. And we're saved through the pain. And we actually come out more victorious. And so Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice in suffering. That's not optimism. Suffering sucks. <laughs> That's faith. And go ask anyone, anyone you know, and there are some people in this church, and I can point them to you, who have gone through suffering, deep misery. But they've gone through that suffering, they've gone through that trial with God. And when you ask them, they'll tell you, yeah, the suffering was real, and I don't wish that on anyone. But God became more real in that time than ever before in my life. I felt his love during that tragedy more than I've ever felt in my entire life. I wish I could get that back. I don't want the suffering back. I don't want the tragedy back. But boy, I would love to have that closeness I had when God got me through. That's faith. That's grace. That's what Jonathan has here. Verse 7, and his armor bearer said to him, I love it, right? Oh, you and me against 36,000? Behold, I am with you heart and soul. That is, his faith was contagious. And, and faith is contagious. And I say exercise it often. As much as you can around your friends and your family, they're going to ask you for the hope that lies within you. And I say you exercise that faith around your little ones as much as possible. Because your little ones are going to see you go through trouble. They're going to see you go through trial, and they need to see that faith. They need to see that strong faith because guess what? They're going to go through trial. They're going to go through trouble. And if you show doubt, if you show despair, if you show fear, when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they're going to die. They're going to die in that valley. But if you show God's right hand, his strong arm leading you through to still waters, they're going to live. So show that faith. It's powerful. Verse 8, then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. Okay, so here's the plan. So remember, the plan is all about impossibilities. We're between these two crags. We're already going over these rocky, nasty crags. Not only are they coming out of this impassable, rocky crags, not only an impossible place, but this plan is impossible. It's a terrible plan. It defies military logic. There's some veterans here that would say this is a terrible plan. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to cross these rocky crags. So, you know, you might be thinking, if you're ever, you know, military people might be thinking, oh, they, they're going to go secretly. They're going to, you know, sneak up from behind and have this great vantage point. Oh, okay, I get it. I get it. This is good. And Jonathan says, no, 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 no. Uh, we're going to show ourselves to them. <laughs> uh, verse 9, if they say to, uh, or Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over the men and we will show ourselves to them. We're going to give up the element of surprise. So the armor bearer is probably thinking, 
Okay? I got you. So, okay, we're going to give up the element of surprise. And then he says, uh, verse 10, but if they say, come up to us, then we will go up to them. Uh, if not, they're going to come up to us. So I, I can see it. You know, the armor bearer is like, oh, I get it. We're going we're to cross this rocky crag. They're going to see us, and then we're going to say, hey, come on over to us. And, and if they come over to us, then we have the vantage point. We'll attack them from a superior vantage, higher point. No, no, no. Jonathan says, no, they're going to call, and we're going to crawl up to them. So we're going to give up the element of surprise. We're going to leave them with the greater vantage point. They can, you know, hail down rocks and arrows on us as we try to come up, two of us, only two of us, to take out over more than 36,000. And the armor bearer is like, great plan. <laughs> it was a great plan. And so they enact the plan. You see, the idea here is it's an impossible, foolish plan. And it's an, it's an impossible, foolish plan because Jonathan knows that God is going to save Israel that day, and it's not going to be by the power and might of Jonathan. It's not going to be because of the plan and the faith of Jonathan. It's ultimately the victory will belong to the Lord because it will be by grace. Not by might, not by power, says the Lord, but by my grace, by my power, says the Lord. They had 36,000, but Jonathan had something better. He had God. So he was ready. So they show themselves. He says, verse 10, he says, and we will, he says, we'll say, if they say, come up to us, if they say, hey, get up here, then we'll go. For the Lord has given them to our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. This shall be a sign to us. It's about revelation. This scene here is setting for us the scene of revelation. It's about divine revelation. God's going to show them something, and they're going to be victorious. That is, faith and grace must wait on the word. God saves by faith, he saves by grace, but that faith and grace must come from the word. Revelation. So faith rests in God's revelation and grace comes by the word. So God revealed his salvation that day. The Lord saved Israel that day by the word. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming up out of their holes where they've hidden themselves. Oh, look, look, they're like, they're like you know, ground squirrels coming up out of, the, out of the holes. And the men of the garrison held Jonathan and his armor bearer said, come up to us and we will show you something. They're, they're taunting them. Come up here, let us teach you a lesson. And that's all Jonathan had to hear. And so he said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now, there's something interesting about this text. The narrator doesn't explain to us how God revealed this revelation to Jonathan. He's not just coming up with this revelation all. He's not making this up on his own. But the point is, the point is that the narrator doesn't explain it because it's not necessary. What's necessary is the narrator showing us that God delivered Israel by revelation. The takeaway here isn't, hey, you know what? I like that, Pastor. Tomorrow I'm going to call my investor. If my investor says, get over here quickly, then I'm going to go invest because the Lord has given me all the stocks. <laughs> no, that's not the takeaway. Revelation is never a product of man. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jonathan's not making up things by the fly. He's being carried. He's being borne along by the Holy Spirit. And according to the New Testament, God spoke, I quote, in various ways to our fathers, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. 
That is, there's a, a logocentric, a logos focus in Reformed worship and theology. The Word. Christ was made the Word incarnate, and we have the Word canonized here. So God speaks to us through the Bible. The Bible is God's revelation, and takeaway is, the takeaway is the Lord saved Israel by the Word of God. The Lord saved Israel by revelation. The Lord saved Israel by faith, by grace, by the word. Verse 13 and 14. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet. It's hard. It's, it's a crag. And the armor berry scuttles along behind him. And they get to the top and they fell before Jonathan. His armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan, his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, as it were, about half uh, half a pharaoh's length of an acre of land. I had to look that up. Google, what's half a pharaoh of length mean? It means half an acre. <laughs> half an acre. I didn't really Google that. Uh, there's other. I don't know if Google will know that answer. She might. Alexa? Uh, that's what my kids would say. Alexa, what's pharaoh length of an acre of land? It's half a, they, in a very small area, they kill about 20. And what happens is it sends the Philistines into a panic. Verse 15, and there was a panic in the camp in the field and among the people. And the garrison, even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked. And the Lord's providence, the Lord's grace, he sends this very timely uh, tremor. And so the land thunders the land. The Lord thunders from heaven and the earth quakes. And it became a very great panic. And then Saul, you know, he's in hiding over there in, in disbelief and fear and it says, verse 16, And the watchmen of Saul of Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude were dispersing. Here they go. The, 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 the enemy's leaving. And Saul tries to figure out what's going on. And he figures out. He's like, who, who's gone? Who's missing? Who's, who's, running off these, who's running off the enemy? He finds out it's Jonathan. He says, it's Jonathan. And so Saul, verse 18, so Saul said to Ahijah, Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. So he calls for the ark. And the reason he calls for the ark is because the Torah calls for the ark. The Torah commands anytime Israel, the nation, goes into battle, they must first consult the Lord. They must turn to the Lord in prayer, and then they can turn to their enemy. And so we see Saul, he's turning to the Lord, and we think, this is great. Here's the hapless king, he's doing right. But not really. Verse 19, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp and the Philistines increased more and more. And the battle is raging. And I just know Saul's thinking, what happened last time that Jonathan fought the, Israel, uh, the Philistines? The last time Jonathan fought the Philistines, everyone praised Jonathan. And so here's Saul. Saul's about to pray and do what's right, but he sees the battle is being won by Jonathan. So he says, forget Torah, forget God, let's get to battle. And you go up, oh, there he goes. There's Saul being Saul again, red flags and all. And it's the narrator's way, and he's been showing us from the very beginning that Saul is unfit to lead God's people. He was spiritually benighted and insensitive to the Lord's ways, so he was therefore worthless. But nevertheless, the Lord used him. Then all, verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle, and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. So the Lord turns the Philistines against one another. Again, that's the Lord's grace. The Lord saved Israel by grace, his power. He, he turns the Philistines, and now they're fighting one another under this great confusion. And then God reinforces the troops of the Hebrews, verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, these are the ones who, who dissented and, and left. 
These are the defected troops. They were Israelites, Hebrews, but they defected. They went and joined the enemy, but now they turn back again with God's people, almost like they were spies. And they'd gone up with them in the camp, and they turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And so in the end, by faith, through grace, and by the word of God, The Lord saved Israel that day. Verse 23. The Lord saved Israel that day. You see, Jonathan asked and said, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. The Lord can save by many or by few. And he has saved us today by one. By one. You know, the Bible reveals one Savior. There's no other name in heaven by which man might be saved than the man, Jesus Christ. And it is the cross of Christ that reveals the grace of God. The Word of God reveals a Savior, and that Savior reveals the grace of God. And we have faith in that Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we believe... That is, if our faith rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you believe he bore your sin on the cross, died the death you deserve to save you from our sins, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ saved sinners on the cross. And if you believe that, If you believe he died for you, that he thought of you on that cross. When he died, he thought of you on the cross as if you're the only one in the world. And by all his power and by all his grace, he has saved and loved you as if you were the only one. He's borne your shame. He has delivered you. On that day, the Lord saved, and he will save you all the days of your life so you can trust him. You can trust Christ in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trouble. Don't shriek in fear. Don't go motionless with doubt. But Take up the cross. Follow the Lord. Move forward as slow as you need to go. The Lord is for you. Nothing can stand against you. For when we are weak, then we are strong. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.